And welcome to Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com. He's Paul Tino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes. Taking your phone calls at 201-939-4513. Hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter. And a reminder, Big Blue Kickoff Live, as always, brought to you by Coors Light Mountain Cold Refreshment made to chill. So today we're going to focus a bit on Super Bowl 54 as the matchup. We are inching closer to the Chiefs and the Niners colliding in Miami. Also, the NFL has finalists for its top moments in NFL history, which is, is going to unveil the winner on Super Bowl Sunday. They're down to four, one of which involves the New York Giants. So Paul and I will get into that as well. We'll get to your phone calls. We'll get your tweets along the way. Let's start off with Super Bowl 54 because there's been so much focus. We've been talking about the Giants offseason, a lot of news and notes on that front. But there is still a game to be played, Paul, before we wrap up and put a bow on the 2019 campaign. And this is the number one seed in the NFC going up against the number two seed in the AFC. These were arguably two of the most consistent teams in the NFL this season. If you were to ask me right now, I'm leaning towards San Francisco winning this football game. And the reason being is I think San Francisco has been one of the most balanced teams all season long. They have found a variety mm-hmm. of ways to win. They can win with Garoppolo's arm, which they showed against the Saints. They can pound the ball, which they've shown in the postseason. They've got an unbelievable defense. They led the NFL in sacks, plus what they did in terms of this postseason with nine more. And they're an opportunistic bunch. It's not to say that I don't think Kansas City is going to have trouble solving them a bit, but if you were to ask me right now, I would say the edge belongs with the San Francisco 49ers. Well, I totally agree because they're an old-school football team that believes in pounding it with the power running game. They really emphasize winning the trenches on both sides, the offensive lines and the defensive line. And they've basically done that throughout the course of the season and never stopped. In fact, if anything... They have done an even better job of controlling the trenches during the postseason. So in my mind, I don't think Kansas City can match up. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if San Francisco wins this game convincingly. Well, that would not surprise me either. I think the big key for Kansas City, multiple factors. Number one, this is not the game unlike the last two games that you want to fall behind and just expect to flip the switch. Not against them. Correct. You were able to do that against Houston. You were able to do that against Tennessee. I don't like their chances of digging themselves out of another hole if they do that and they go down that road against San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that has to change. The second thing is, in fairness, I thought the Chiefs did a really good job against Derrick Henry in the second half. First half, Tennessee put together those lengthy drives. They didn't always finish them with touchdowns. That was a big difference. If Kansas City with Frank Clark and Chris Jones now back from injury, as well as Terrell Suggs, if Spags' group can consistently win in the trenches and they can slow down that Niners rushing attack, this is where the game gets interesting. If they can't do that and San Francisco continues to throw one running back after another, Kyle Juszczyk at fullback, I don't like their chances of getting off the field, especially on third down. I think you're selling uh, Jimmy G short. I think Garoppolo is a quality quarterback who oh, can I am make you, plays though. through the year, and there is no question about the impact that Kittle has had. In fact, they've been saying all week on NFL Network about how these are the two 1,000-yard receiving tight ends in this game. First time it's ever happened in Super Bowl history. And I think that even if San Francisco's running game gets slowed down, that Jimmy G is going to be able to tear them up. And I think Kittle's going to have a really big game, especially against the Chiefs' single-high safety defense. Look, I'm one of the biggest Steve Spagnuolo fans on this planet. I absolutely adore and respect the guy. 
I also happen to have a tremendous amount of regard for Sam Madison, who was secondary coach out there yeah. with the Chiefs, uh, coaching their corners. And, of course, uh, uh, Dave Merritt, another former Giants assistant who was out there in the secondary as well. I have great respect for those three guys, and I will be pulling for them, especially for Spags. But the bottom line is the Chiefs' defense, and I saw this stat the other day on NFL Network as well, when they had eight guys in the box, eight or more guys in the box, they were giving up one of the highest yards per carry uh, stats in the NFL this season because they know that they don't have a stout rushing defense. So Spags has had to scheme it, and that's what he does. That's what he does so well. When he's got decent defenses, he makes them better because he schemes it. He does it with smoke and mirrors. Spags is that much of a defensive guru, that much of a defensive mind, that he does get the most out of guys. In fact, gets more than what they have to offer. And I think he'll do that with the Chiefs. Well, but he's I done just, it already with the group. But I just don't think they've got enough against this San Francisco team that can totally control the trenches. Juszczyk is going, well, he was a Pro Bowl selection. He didn't go, obviously, because he can't. He's in the Super well, Bowl. Well, nobody went from either of these right. teams. Right, but, but, but he is, again, the throwback dinosaur, that fullback from old school power football who has come back to destroy the video game myth that you have to be a video game offense to win. And he's a big part of that. And, and Kittle is a huge part of what they do if their run game gets shut down. I just don't think that Spags has enough smoke and mirrors to control San Francisco's offense. I think if they need more points, if Mahomes is able to put points up on the board, San Francisco can answer back. Well, the thing about the Niners, going back to your point about the rushing attack, there's two drives this postseason that will always stand out to me. They went up against the Vikings. They ran the ball eight times on a drive. That's all they did. Yes. All, and they got into the end zone. Yes. Then they come back the following week. They go up against the Packers. This time, it's a six-play drive. All they do is run the football, and once again, they punch it in. So you've had now back-to-back -back weeks where the Niners are basically telling the opposition, we are going to run the football, and there is nothing that those defenses can do to stop them. Old school, baby. So that's the task that Spags has. And if it did not work for Minnesota and Green Bay, and I think Mike Zimmer's defenses in Minnesota have been one of the most consistent groups over the last few seasons. I have a great deal of respect for him. I think Mike Pettin has done a really nice job with the Packers' defense this year now that he has a pass rush with Zedaria Smith and Preston Smith. And for those units to just look completely lost, yeah, that's not going to be fun for Kansas City. And, you know, here's the other thing. The Niners' pass rush. Patrick Mahomes, he's a different animal, Paul. We at least have to give him that, and we have to give Kansas City. This is not Aaron Rodgers, even. This is not Kirk Cousins. But San Francisco, with Nick Bosa, with D. Ford, Quan Alexander, Fred Warner at the linebacker position, I don't think gets enough respect. DeForest Buckner. I mean, I could sit here, we can have an entire show well, going through. Well, it's five number one picks on that defense. Yeah, but all of them, but see, it's one thing to have first-round picks. It's another thing to say the guys are producing. They're producing, <laughs> yes, Paul, okay? Yes, they are. How many teams have we seen? They go defense, defense, defense. Yes, the guys just are. don't produce. These guys are producing. So that, to me, is also extremely refreshing. And the reason I bring that up is, what did Spags do in 07 when he was the defensive coordinator? He had that San Francisco type of defense. He had five or six guys. He rotated them in and out. Guys remained fresh. Philadelphia with Jim Schwartz, the year they won the Super Bowl recently. 
He also rotated guys. Mm-hmm. Niners, to me, are woven from that same cloth. No doubt. So that's another thing that I think works heavily in favor of the Niners. Is going to be a big test for this Kansas City Chiefs offensive line. And Mahomes has a way of working his magic and digging himself out of holes because of a play that he had right before the first half against Tennessee. But what happens if those running lanes are not there? And what happens if you got pressure in your face? This, to me, is a much different defense that Mahomes is going up against that he hasn't been necessarily exposed to over the course of the season and over the course of the postseason. So that, to me, is something else to watch. And your point about Jimmy Garoppolo is well taken, Paul. And I was not underselling him. If it was taken that way, that was not what I was laying out. It was just that the Niners have leaned on the rushing attack. And my philosophy is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So if Jimmy can throw eight times, it's not a reflection of Jimmy not being a good quarterback. Mm-hmm. It's basically a reflection of Kyle Shanahan saying, if you guys are not going to stop us on the ground, why the hell am I going to put my quarterback I in I think that position? there is a narrative out there, though, that says if the Chiefs can somewhat slow down San Francisco's running game, they're going to win. I just think that narrative sells Jimmy G short because I think he can throw when he has to. Well, he uh, proved that against the Saints. And no that's doubt. why I referenced there's that no game. Doubt. Go back and watch that Saints game. That was a back-and-forth game. Now, I want to throw another number out there. I saw this one. I believe Steve Mariucci on NFL Network also. You see, I've been watching that station a lot lately. I can see. Yes. And <laughs> try I can tell my, as well. Try to get my football fill. Uh, I believe it was Mariucci who had said that over the last two years, as Mahomes has started for the Chiefs, he's thrown a total of 18 interceptions. Okay? 17 of them were against base front defenses, and only one came against a blitz. Well, the Niners don't have to blitz to get home. No, they could get home with their front four. And that is a big deal because, again, 17 out of Mahomes' 18 picks over the last two years, think about those numbers again, came against a base defense. One interception against the Blitz. Yeah, that's an interesting nugget there. I so, have not heard that. So yeah. they don't have to gamble much against him. They just don't. San Francisco's defense is stout enough that they don't need. In fact, I believe what their their pressure package rate is among, I think, the third lowest in the NFL because well, they because don't need the same guys. Correct, to how effective the group has been. So why are you going to blitz? Why are you going to go crazy? Okay, like that? so that means Mahomes is going to have to look at a standard defense more often than not on Sunday, and some of the shenanigans and magic that he usually pulls out of a hat may not be as effective because over the course of the last two years, it's proven not to be. Especially with how well-disciplined the Niners' defense is, too. It's yes. not a unit that makes a lot of mistakes They're and has very a lot of breakdowns. Yeah. And that's why I would be surprised if all of a sudden Robert Sala, their defensive coordinator, says we've got to go blitz happy if he knows, hey, my guys are going to get home. And also, you don't want to blitz that much because then, remember, Mahomes is so good, Paul, with his off-script plays. That's Mm -hmm. how he catches defenses in precarious spots. So the more you blitz, if you don't get home and you overcommit, in the passing lanes, then Mahomes is going to be salivating. Well, Mahomes really is the next updated version of what Aaron Rodgers had been for the last decade when Rodgers not only can make plays on the improv, but he's got the multiple arm angles and has the strength in the arm to throw the ball 70 yards even if he's only on one leg. Yeah. And that's what made Rodgers so incredibly dangerous. And Mahomes is that way. How many times have we seen the three-quarter arm pass, the no-look pass, the cross-the-body pass, and he has gusto and zip on it no matter where he throws the ball? 
That's what makes him so incredibly dangerous on the improv. And, you know, if you're the Niners, well, you know what? Just play disciplined. Don't send extra guys. Why take the risk if you could just play him straight up? I'm with you. And that's why, to me, it's also a fascinating matchup because of all the X's and O's that are in play here, the game of chess that is going to happen between both of these teams. I I think that's what, to me, adds intrigue. So that's just a taste of what this matchup looks like between the Niners and the Chiefs as we inch closer to the Super Bowl. We'll get into the top plays, top moments, I should say, in NFL history. The league is down to four. They're going to announce the top one on Super Bowl Sunday, and we're going to open up the phone lines. But before we get to that, another thing I wanted to throw out that I thought was interesting this week, Paul, and I don't know if you saw it. Obviously, at the Super Bowl, there are so many coaches there. There are so many players there that have connections to just about everybody around the league. So the New York media caught up with Rob Gronkowski at the Super Bowl. And they asked him about Joe Judge, given the fact that Gronkowski (laughs) was in New England and crossed paths with Joe Judge. And I don't know if you saw this. I thought his answer was uh, quite interesting. I I just want to read a quote here. This is what Gronkowski told the New York Post about Joe Judge. Quote, he's out of control and I love it. He's a great coach for the Giants organization. He has so much passion for the game, and that's what you need if you want to be a coach. You have to love the game of football to the max, and that's what he does. He knows the game of football inside and out. He goes on to say he knew where every single player needed to be on every single play. It was unbelievable, and he knew it like the snap of his fingers. He knew it in a split second, so it wasn't like he had to think of where this player needed to be, you just knew he's made for the game of football, end quote. Now, that's somebody that's been around him. It's just one perspective, but I just thought that was interesting in terms of what Gronkowski picked up in his knowledge of the game and his passion for the game. And remember, Gronkowski, before he broke his hand in 2012, when he was protecting, I believe it was on an extra point play, he was a key special teamer. He so was. he was very much involved with Joe Judge from that standpoint. Oh, I don't think there's any question about his credentials in terms of his knowledge uh, of Coach Judge. And, you know, this is just another guy chiming in and talking about the kinds of characteristics that this guy is bringing from the Patriots organization to the New York football giants. Uh, All good stuff. And, and, you know, look, I've yet to see anybody, anybody question either Joe Judge's credentials, his work ethic, his mentality, or the direction that he wants to uh, set for this franchise. I've yet to see anybody from the outside question that. It seems as though, even though most people in the in the media and in the public forum did not really know who Joe Judge was, it seems as though a lot of people around the league had respect for him. And that's usually the case, because I say this all the time, Paul, and I think you can attest to this. The coaching fraternity, while it appears to be very big, it's actually very small. And everybody tends to know everybody or has heard of everybody. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are intertangled because of their connections through coaching trees or at the collegiate level. So, yeah, a lot of people internally in that fraternity know Joe Judge. Media members and fan members, he was not a household name. And it's understandable. I mean, how many people are studying up on Bill Belichick's assistants and his special teams coordinators and his wide receivers coaches? Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that that's stunning when people reacted the way they did, but Yeah, when you ask individuals who have been in the coaching ranks and have been around him or cross paths with him, you know they've heard things and they have a different lens than perhaps somebody else. There was one other piece of news that I did want to get out there, and it came last night uh, across the bottom of the crawl. Breaking news about Chris Nolman, 
the uh, Pro Bowl yeah. and Hall of Fame defensive lineman for the Minnesota Vikings passed away after a lengthy bout with cancer. He'd had a brain tumor removed last year and uh, has now succumbed to the illness. And uh, I can only say this, as somebody who had the pleasure of watching Chris Bowman play throughout his career, the guy was an absolute terror. He was a complete force, devastating uh, pass rusher, and also played the run extremely well. Two-way player who, uh, you know, during the course of his time frame in the National Football League was one of the most feared defensive players on the field. Synonymous with the Minnesota Vikings, probably more so than any other team. He was with the Falcons. He was with the Niners. Then he finished up his career with Mm -hmm. the Vikings. Eight-time Pro Bowler. One of the most consistent pass rushers in the game. And you know what's interesting, Paul? And you would know this more so in terms of his early stage of his career. I was reading up on this. He actually started out as a linebacker, Mm -hmm. and then they moved him to defensive end. Yes, that's correct. When he moved to defensive end, 1989 was the year he had 21 sacks, where he led the NFL, and he had set a Vikings franchise record before, of course, Jared Allen, I believe it was 2012, came through with 22. I mean, who would have thought two guys in franchise history would have 20-plus sack number seasons, but... The fact that they moved him from one position to another, and when they moved him to defensive end, just something clicked, and there was mm-hmm. no turning back, it seemed, from that standpoint. Well, I remember him taking some snaps at defensive tackle, too. He much did, Much like yeah. what the Giants did with Justin Tuck. He was moved around. And he had seasons as a defensive tackle where he had double-digit sacks, mm-hmm. too, mm-hmm. which that's important to note because when you think of the defensive tackle position, even in today's game, you think of Aaron Donald. There's a guy, blink of an eye, he'll get double-digit sacks. Outside of that, it's difficult See, for some of these guys. That's one of the reasons why, and let me just digress for a second. When so many people talk about Aaron Donald as Superman, I get it. Right now, he is one of the most powerful defensive presences on, on the field. I get that. He has done a tremendous job of being a one-man wrecking crew to people who go up against that Rams front. I totally get that, okay? But understand this. I saw Chris Dolman play, okay? I saw Chris Dolman play for a long time. He didn't just do it for two or three or four years. Chris Dolman was in this league for more than a decade. Yeah. And he was a dominant force. And as you said, played multiple positions. You know, from my money, All right, for my money, again, it's a little bit of a different game today than it was, you know, 20 years ago. I'd have no problem taking Chris Dolman over Aaron Donald. Well, at this point, I don't like to crown anyone currently in the game over somebody that played. I think my biggest issue, and you know, this may go off a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's all related. In the offseason, we have the time to have some of these conversations, and this is my pet peeve in basketball. Right, before you go there, yes. let me just say then that Chris Donald was the Aaron Donald. Uh, Chris Dolman was the Aaron Donald of his day. Okay, would, would you would you allow me that comparison? That's fine. Okay. Well, I wasn't even going to dispute what you were saying. Oh, though. okay. I'm in agreement with you. Paul. Oh, I wasn't yeah. sure if you no, were. No, I, I felt like you were getting defensive. But I there. see. But no, at least, I would, and Dolman played multiple positions where Donald doesn't. So I mean, well, Donald is. But anyway, Donald deserves credit as he being does. one of the best defensive players in the game of his time. And for There's a no guy doubt. that is lined up on the interior for his ability to get after the quarterback. Once again, deserves a lot of credit. No doubt. Where I thought you were going and where I'm in agreement is, and this is just my issue with sports overall, the conversation, when we have somebody in today's game, we always need to crown them and categorize them. And that's where I thought you were going, meaning this guy's better than Chris Dolman. 
or, or this guy is second all-time well, people... and Dolman is third all-time. Why do we have to do that immediately when a guy is currently playing? Why can't we just watch, observe, and also still appreciate the guys who came well before them mm-hmm. and not have to downgrade them simply because it was a different era of football? That's well, where I was going to go with that. I think people talk about Dolman with such affection and with such awe. It seems as though a lot of folks don't even remember what Chris Dolman did. I mean, to me, seen there, done that, been there before, Dolman was that guy. Yeah. You know, 20 years ago, Dolman was that guy. So I'm not sitting here with my jaw to the ground over Aaron Donald. Aaron Donald is a great player. He deserves all the respect and credit in the world. But don't talk about him like he's a one of a kind, never seen, never done that before. That's not the case. Well, I guess you could say Dolman is somewhat underrated. To a degree. Well, he's in a Hall of Fame. Well, no, I, I, I <laughs> mean, I know he's in the, I, I guess what I mean by that is, if you were to ask me from his era, name the dominant defensive players. There's two guys that would come to mind, Paul. I would say Lawrence Taylor and Reggie White. And Bruce Smith. Okay, Bruce Smith. I'll give you two. That's fair. I don't think most people throw in Dolman's name in that conversation. Is that Prob- fair? Probably not. Okay, so that's what I mean by him being somewhat underrated. That's fair. So... That's where I was going with that. But, of course, he was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. you got to do something <laughs> to get in there. But and, and here's the other thing, and I'll myself admit this. I don't think if you ask most people how many career sacks did Chris Dolman have, I don't think most people would think over 150 sacks, Paul. I, I don't think they would. No, you, you think that that number would well, come to you know mind what? for most people? You're probably right. Because of the fact that they wouldn't put his name up there in that category, yeah. they probably don't realize his stats are that good either. So I think you're probably right. People would not expect that. Just for perspective, Reggie White had 198 sacks. Yeah. Well, I'm not and trying Bruce to Smith convince you. Bruce Smith had 200 plus. Okay. No, but 150... I mean, that's pretty oh, damn impressive. Okay. I know. No, I know. Once again, I'm not trying to convince you. It's more of just a generic conversation. That's why I think he's somewhat underrated because you just don't hear Dolman's name being thrown out in the company of some of those other guys. Let's just, just say this. When people's jaws drop over Aaron Donald today, my jaw used to drop for Chris Dolman years ago. I thought he was that dominant. He was just an absolute ferocious beast. And who could forget the road warrior uh, purple face paint of course that yeah. he used to have underneath his his purple shield I mean he was yeah. and, and very vocal he too. dressed the part very very vocal I mean he was a colorful colorful character anyway uh, we digress sympathies to the Vikings yes, and all indeed. friends and family uh, of Chris Nolman and and his other teammates as well uh, it's it's a loss for the National Football League because he was truly a great player and a great character. Well said. Uh, 58 years old, a lengthy battle with cancer. Uh, very sad news on the brink of Super Bowl 54. We're going to open up the phone lines. Then we'll also get to those four plays we were talking about a little bit later on in the program just to give you our thoughts. And you can still vote on NFL.com. A reminder, Big Blue Kickoff Live brought to you by Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. Dan is in Delaware, and he gets us going on the latest edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Dan? Hey, guys. Hello. How are we doing? Yep. So I had uh, one comment and then a question for you. Just a quick comment um, about the Eli retirement. It was, as a fan, I was so happy to see how everything went down, the Giants, all the video tributes and the the press conference and just everything they did, the lead-up, everything, retiring his number. It was just top-notch, first-class, uh, 
everything you'd want to see for a guy like Eli to get his, uh, you know, what he deserved and what he, you know, all the respect everyone had for him, what they showed, all the teammates that came. It was just great. Not every player gets that, and um, you could see that around the organiz- like other organizations in the league. They don't do that for, for their legends and their, their top players. So uh, it was, we've had some lean years, a couple lean years here, some bad years here, but it's good to see we're still running this organization from a first-class uh, way. So it just made me happy as a fan to see all that. And then the quick uh, question I had for you, uh, not, I don't want like a prediction or like getting a specific players on free agency. Um, and Lance, I don't know if you have maybe discussed this on your serious show since you kind of do more like national stuff than just specific to the Giants. Um, but I didn't know if you heard about this. I haven't heard it discussed too much. I read that there is some kind of a loophole in the collective bargaining agreement. I know exactly where you're going. Because this is a final year, and if they don't have a new agreement by a certain day, that teams are allowed to put two tags on players where they could franchise one and transition another. And if that is true, if you could confirm if that's true, if that is true, if that will obviously limit the player pool that we're able to go into free agency this year, and you know how they normally say in free agency you're playing, paying like B players A money. Um, if that now means since the pool might be so much limited that you might be paying C players A money, and there's a second part to that. Um, one of the guys I follow on Twitter who works for Over the Cap put out there that he doesn't know this for a fact either, but since nobody knows how the new CBA is going to play out, the rollover cap money – that teams are allowed to carry year to year. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know how that may work into 2021. So a lot of teams may end up saying, we're just going to spend our money this year because we have no idea what the future is going to look like. So we're going to just spend it all. And if you have a limited free agent pool and you have a lot of money and you feel like you got to spend it all, are you going to kind of, I know, I forget who said the quote, something about going hog wild in, I don't know if it was Gettleman on one of the shows, but like, if teams may have to go hog wild if they have money and if the talent pool might be lessened because of that two-tag loophole, I just wanted your opinion on that, if you thought that how that could affect free agency as a whole and then specific to us given Paul has kind of been saying, you know, this is phase three, which I'm assuming phase three means, all right, we've rebuilt the team, we've gone younger, now it's time to get some real talent in here and start winning some games in year three. Mm-hmm. Um I just didn't. I just wanted your guys' thoughts and opinion, and a if you could confirm if what I've said is has any truth to it, and yeah. then if how that if it is true, how it would affect our free agency. I want Lance to answer this in more detail. I will simply say to you, I believe Phase Three indicates the Giants need to get uh, maybe five or as many as six legitimate rotational players, if not starters, who are going to give them significant snaps in the upcoming season. In my opinion, it is never too much to get three of those in a draft. Mm. So if the Giants can go out and get two free agents, that would give you the five. Again, I'm saying five or six. That would be enough to fulfill what I believe to be phase three of the plan. So I don't think that necessarily makes it impossible for the Giants to do what it is that they need to do. 
And first of all, Dan, that's a great question that I, I think you posed on many different fronts. You are correct. Uh, Ian Rappaport of the NFL Network did report this when there was speculation about what the Bucks were going to do with Jameis Winston. From what at least I've been told, there was a clause in the CBA that in the final year, if a new deal wasn't in place, teams would be able to use both the transition tag and the franchise tag. That's what I'm led to believe. So mm -hmm. what you said is accurate as far as I'm concerned. And you're right. That's uncharted territory because usually you can only use one of the tags. You can never right. use multiple right. tags. You either Correct. choose the franchise tag, you choose the transition tag. Correct. To your point, if now every team across the board has two tags, meaning really a protection for every team to say we can make sure two guys don't all of a sudden walk and we get nothing for right. Yeah, that definitely changes the free agency game. There's no doubt about that. Now, you brought up an interesting point. Well, if every team is going to protect two guys, let's say, and remember, every team doesn't use the tag. So let's not Maybe go too crazy. Too, yeah. It's not going to be where you're going to have – 32 teams, 64 right. players are going to be tagged. I don't right, foresee right. a situation. But, you know, you could certainly see maybe a little bit more increase in numbers compared to what's usually tagged. And I would say on average, you get maybe five or six guys that are tagged. So could you see us get to the 10, 12 barometer across the league? I don't think that's crazy. But I still think GMs are going to have discipline where if it's a C-level guy, to your point, and they can use the money to give extensions to current players or they want to save the money for free agency down the road instead in, in case guys get hurt. I don't think you're going to see an exponential increase in numbers of contracts for C-level players. You may see some B-level guys get a little bit more money, but I don't think teams are going to be that desperate if a few additional tags are being utilized. Gotcha. Well, I didn't know also related to the second part where if – since that no one knows what the 2021 CBA is going to look like if they had to use the money. If they're like, we don't know how the rollover or the carryover into 2021, so we need to spend. So may maybe you're right. Maybe now's the time where if you have guys coming off their third year or something, let's just give them, give them some money, give them an extension, lock them up early. I don't know. I just it was just it was more of a bigger picture thing. So like I said, I, I know what our needs are, our, our team needs are, and stuff. And I know like for example, like the guy Conklin from Tennessee. I've heard us link to him a lot just because of our needs. But they could they have and they have like Mariota, Henry, and Conklin all hitting free agency. And now they have the ability. I'm assuming one of the tags is going to go to the quarterback. And now they have the ability to choose one of the other two guys. Well, they will, will it? They've know. got Tannehill. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, remember, I know Tannehill yeah. will get the one, but you then know. they have the they have the ability to tag either Henry or Conklin, yeah. for example. Well, you said Mariota a second ago, though. Yeah, I think you meant Tannehill, though. I, I right. think you meant Tannehill. Yeah. Yeah. Here's you, the you interesting part. And we'll, we'll let you go on that note, uh, Dan. Appreciate, appreciate the phone Yeah, you got it. And interesting that, you know, John Mara and Dave Gettleman, I believe, have both suggested that the Giants won't go hog-wild crazy in free agency and spend all their money. I think they've said that. But I also think that that doesn't preclude them from necessarily spending a lot of that cap room on current guys. Well, that's why I meant extensions when I threw that which, out. Yeah. Which I think is the interesting part here because don't confuse the, the spending of the money with how much money actually comes out of the coffers because they do have a number of guys that they may just want to 
extend and give raises to and make sure that they hold on to them. And that could be a very interesting part of this tricky situation. Now, I didn't hear any confirmation as to whether there's a definitive answer behind is the money going to continue to roll over like it does exist. Remember, whenever you have a new CBA agreement, sometimes things do change. So I don't know how the league is going to handle that if there is sort of an unknown I would assume there may be a grace year period if there is some type of a changeover. Just I'm just know. talking basically off the top of my head here uh, in terms of a guessing game. But let's put it this way. Teams are going to have some type of an answer from the league before they start approaching free agency. And I guarantee you nobody's going to go and spend all their money unless they're told you absolutely can't carry it over <laughs> to the following season. Yeah. So, you know, th I'm that's, sure. they're not going to basically be operating blindly, I guess is my point. But w once again... You don't spend money for the sake of spending money. And I agree with you, Paul, and I think we referenced this over the last few shows. John Mara made it very clear at Joe Judge's introductory presser because he spoke to the media on the side after. And, you know, he was asked about what do you think the approach is going to be for free agency and, you know, said on multiple occasions, paraphrasing, he'd be very surprised that they go on the spending spree that they did in 2016. Mm -hmm. So if you use that... To me, I would expect more, if there is money being spent, it to retain the services of some of the current players. Marcus Golden and Leonard Williams come to mind. Who we buy. talked about yesterday. Or give extensions to somebody who is not necessarily a free agent, who they just feel really good of about at this time to lock up. That's how I could see uh, things playing out on that front. All right, let's head back to the phone lines. We've got PJ in the Bronx. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, PJ? Uh, it's CJ. CJ. How's it going, Lance? We're Lance doing very Paul. well, CJ. Apologies. Hi. What's happening? Uh, just a few quick things. Uh, first of all, I just want to take this time to send my condolences out to the uh, Kobe Bryant's family. Um, you sure. know, I, I'm, I've been so devastated because, uh, you know, Kobe Bryant had a, a nice positive impact in my life, and I just wanted to take this time to reflect and to also um, – you know, send my sympathies out there to them. Absolutely. Um, we echo your sentiments. Yeah. My sentiments. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I'm sorry, guys. I'm driving at the same time. No, no worries. We're here. Thing, um, my main, the main reason why I called was because I wanted to reflect on Elon Manning's career. Um, you know, watching his presser was, um, you know, kind of uh, bittersweet because Eli has carried himself with so much class throughout the years. And, um, you know, uh, seeing him in in one piece, uh, you know, after, you know, his career and after not having uh, an offensive lineman for, you know, a steady, solid, solid offensive lineman for quite some time, you know, it kind of made me happy knowing that, you know, he came into the league uh, without any injuries or, you know, being sidelined by injuries. And I see that he's leaving now. Um, again, in, in, in one piece. So um, I just wanted to just talk about how, you know, it was it was really – I believe he deserved a little bit better as a quarterback, as a franchise quarterback. Um, after 20 – after the second Super Bowl in 2011, you know, his, his offensive linemen um, weren't, weren't that great. And um, I think that he did the best that he could with what he had. And um, I'm just so thankful that he was our quarterback for the, you know, for for 16 years of service that he gave us. So, with that being said, gentlemen, I hope you have a great day, and uh, I'll take your 
comments off the air. Thank you. You as well, CJ. And thanks Thank for you. the phone call. Well, you know, most people share his feelings about Eli Manning. You do have those pockets of folks who somehow, some way, have a warped perception of what Eli was and, and what Eli did for this franchise. Uh, I would only say one other thing about Eli, and I know it's it's been kind of beaten to death over the last week. But, but the other thing about his durability, and again, people continue to gloss over this. You know, for those who used to joke about how easy perhaps he would go down when a guy would come in to sack him or to come in to hit him, just remember one thing. Your greatest value to a team is the fact that you can get up and take the next snap. And Eli was very Gumby-like, if you will, understanding how to absorb hits, understanding how to take hits. Franco Harris was this way as a running back. He understood how to take hits. He understood if you were close to the sideline, get out of bounds, because that's going to be one less hit you have to take over the course of your 275 carries. And, of course, Jim Brown used to rip Franco Harris for that, calling him a wimp and everything. But here's the thing. If that's what you did to guarantee that you'd be available for the next snap to help your team produce, well, isn't that intelligence? No? Yeah, I think that classifies as that. And and so, you know, rather than try to be a hero, it's kind of like the guy who throws the third down pass away because we're going to punt, punt's a good play. Live to see another down. Live to see another down. That's what Eli did so often. He would live to see another down. He would fold up and take that hit or take that sack, get rid of the ball, and okay, he gets hit, whatever. He always made sure he was going to be able to get up because he knew his value to the Giants was in taking that next snap. That's smart. And yet, people just sometimes, they just totally forget that part of it. Well, what the last caller just outlined, as far as I'm concerned, runs counter to quarterback records and is another reason why I hate quarterback records. Sure. And I'm not bringing it up because of what the caller said because the caller wasn't going in that direction. But I guess what I'm saying is if you subscribe to what our last caller laid out and saying that you have to take the consideration the pieces around the quarterback. And I'm not just talking about the offensive line. I'm talking about the defense too, the makeup of the defense mm-hmm. and how the defense performs, Paul. Then you can't simultaneously tell me you put value and weight into quarterback records, and the quarterback wins and loses games himself because those two things run completely counter to one another. You can't evaluate and use exactly. as an excuse the talent around the quarterback and at the same time, no, 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 but the quarterback could get the job done himself. Well, which one is it? You either put weight or substance behind the quarterback record, or you say, hey, it's a team element. There's three facets to a team. I'm going to evaluate all three facets, and whether they win or lose, it's a reflection of those three facets, not necessarily just what the quarterback did. Totally agree. I'm just throwing that out there because, you know, we always get caught up in conversations, especially during the offseason, whether people love, hate, or indifferent towards Eli, they go to the quarterback record. And a lot of other guys, Kirk Cousins is somebody that's brought up Paul a lot in terms of his Monday night record, Tony Romo. And I always say, I don't care about their records. Tell me about the elements of the team at the time in which they played. And I think Eli needs to be put under that umbrella, just like any other quarterback in fairness. Well, I said this the other day, and it might have been on this show, maybe it wasn't that I think people get caught up in baseball pitchers' one-loss records and 300 wins being a landmark for a Hall of Fame pitcher. And because people put so much emphasis on Hall of Fame credentials being based on pitchers' one-loss records, 
I think people then try to transfer that and put the one loss record of an NFL quarterback into consideration for his Hall of Fame candidacy. I truly believe that. I, th- I think it's a it's a transfer of perspectives. One loss records for a starting pitcher. Yeah. One loss records for a starting quarterback. And it doesn't work that way at all. Well, but also notice, interestingly, Paul, connected to what your point, I think the barometer of 300 wins for the Hall of Fame has changed now. That conversation has changed. Well, it has it to used now. to be. It used 300 is the magical it number now be. because of durability issues and injuries. 300 is not necessarily that round well, number. That's why a lot of people look at the pitcher's winning percentage now well, as part of it. If you, have, if you have yeah. 250 wins with a great winning percentage, they're now considering you to be Hall of Fame caliber. But the point is that transfer of philosophy does not work to the National Football League because NFL NFL quarterbacks are so beholden to many, many, many factors that a baseball starting pitcher will never have to deal with. Well, but I do think there are factors. Run support is a big part. There are factors, but not nearly as many. No, there's much more wild cards. Well, because there's special teams, there's defense in football, unlike what we see in other sports. No question. Well, that's why I say, see, in basketball, if people want to have the conversation about who's better than the other guy or... Did this player achieve this on the biggest stage? I would say in basketball, Paul, your top superstar plays both sides, okay? He can't take off on the defensive side of the ball or his team is in trouble, right? No doubt. The quarterback in football or even a pass rusher in football, when the offense goes out there, where is he? He's on the bench. He's a spectator. He's as useful as the fan three rows up. And it's the same thing when the defense is out there. The quarterback is as useful as a fan. They're spectators. So it's a completely different conversation, to it your is. point, it than is. it is with basketball. Yeah, And those conversations need to be had more than just these generic labels and records that we apply across the board. Let's head back to the line. Scott is in New Mexico. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Scott? Hi, guys. How are you doing today? Good Hi, Scott. What uh, you got for I was us? listening to your conversation earlier about the Super Bowl, and I have a slightly different take. I don't think this is going to be a runaway. I think this is going to be a pick game. And the reason I say that, uh, when you look at uh, Jimmy Garofalo, uh, he's thrown in the playoffs. He's averaging 104 yards and and, uh, passing. And the other two quarterbacks who averaged about the same thing both lost. Tom Brady and Drew Brees both threw about the same thing, averaging about 104, 105 yards. With the defenses that San Francisco runs, which I think are the most complex defenses in the NFL this year, I also respect what Steve Spagnuolo does, and he's going to realize that if he takes away the running attack, uh, then it's up to Jimmy Garoppolo, excuse me, to win this game. And I'm not so sure that he has that ability right now to do that based on what I've seen in the playoffs so far. I'm only talking about the playoffs. I'm not talking about the regular season because your whole dynamic changes in the playoffs. Uh, I do think that Debo Samuels is going to make a big play in this game, and I think it's going to come down to one or two plays. And also, I think uh, if they can neutralize Bosa, if Trent Fisher can do that, I think it's going to be a very, very close game because uh, Patrick Mahomes, uh, he's averaging almost 300 yards in passing. And despite how great the running attack is for San Francisco, and it is great, I just think that uh, Steve Spagnuolo is going to neutralize what your team does best. Isn't that what every defense does? And do you think if it's put in Jimmy Garoppolo's hands, they can actually win this game? 
Um, because I know that San Francisco defense is going to keep it close, but I'm not sure that Jimmy Garofalo can do it, despite that he has the ability. But this is a whole different sequence for him, a whole different set of circumstances when you get into a Super Bowl game. I was just curious as to your opinion on that. Well, my counter to what you said, Scott, is you don't think Mike Zimmer and Mike Pettin went into the last two games against the Niners and said, we got to take away the run and we got to force Jimmy to beat us and look at what happened so it's easier said than done sometimes when you say well they're going to stop the run well there were drives where the Niners ran eight straight plays six straight plays respectively and still scored touchdowns on two really good defenses so I don't think it's so simple and this is not to take anything away from Spags's ability but I'm sure he's going to prepare his team and they're going to look to take away the run and sometimes when you get out there you miss a tackle the offensive line wins the battle opens up holes Raheem Mostert is coming at you full force and you can't bring him down it's a completely different story the one other quarterback by the way that you didn't mention Ryan Tannehill did not have great numbers at all and Tennessee still found ways to win games now granted I know they lost to Kansas City but the reason why those numbers are a bit deceiving and I don't put much stock into your averages is Tannehill didn't throw a lot against Baltimore okay go back to that Ravens game but here's the thing Tannehill had an outstanding throw to Khalif Raymond, the former mm-hmm. Giant, which mm-hmm. was, what, a 50-yard bomb, Paul? Right. <laughs> and he hit him right where only he could get the ball. And that was really the only thing that Tannehill had to do. They pounded the ball. But you know what? He played an efficient game. He protected the football. So Garoppolo's the type of guy, he protects the football, and he throws for a buck fifty, and they run the football for 200 yards. Who's to say they can't win a football game? And I also think you brought up Debo Samuel. I agree with you. I also would not overlook Emmanuel Sanders. Since they acquired him, he's also been a significant X factor. And Paul mentioned George Kittle. So between Kittle, Sanders, and Samuel, if you do stop the run and you tell Jimmy you got to utilize those three, you could do a lot worse as a quarterback than you know those three weapons that he has around Look, him. Look, understand one thing, and I love Spags, and he has sure. done a great job with this Kansas City defense this year because the truth of the matter is it's not a great defense, but he has gotten what is an average defense to play well. Yeah. They cannot take it to the next level against this San Francisco team. I don't believe so. There's only so much smoke and mirrors can do. Well, I kind of disagree, I think, with Tyreek Hill on the field and with Mahomes' ability to scramble. I think Kansas City can create problems for San Francisco. And I agree with you, Scott. Yeah, I I think those are valid points. I also would not sleep on Hardman, too. McCole Hardman is also a fast guy. They've got a lot of speed. There's no doubt about it. You know, speed is is essential in these kinds of games. But uh, I was just – I appreciate the uh, feedback, and I'll I'll, – have a nice weekend, guys, and hey, I'll look you too, to Scott. The game. Absolutely, and appreciate the phone call. See, that's why some of the points he brought up is why, to me, it's a fascinating matchup. I know you threw out at the beginning. I could see the game getting to a lopsided fashion. It wouldn't stun me. Do I truly believe it's going to be a lopsided game? No. I do think Kansas City is going to find ways to make things interesting, but... If there's any team that would run away with the game, Paul, which is, I think, where you and I are on the same mm-hmm. page, it would be the Niners to me, mm-hmm. much more so than it would be the Chiefs. Yeah, I would agree with that. We, we don't have a lot of time left in the show. I did want to get to the four plays. I, I do want to get to it as well. You know, we could, before we get to our other calls, because absolutely. the NFL Network has been going through a voting process to narrow down the top great moment in NFL history through the first 100 years of the league. And the four finalists that are still available on the internet to vote for, and the uh, winner is going to be announced on Super Bowl Sunday, is the Don Shula being carried off after the 72 perfect season, the David Tyree helmet catch, 
against the Patriots in Super Bowl 42. The immaculate reception, Franco Harris uh, to win a playoff game at the very last play against the Oakland Raiders. And then the Dwight Clark catch to uh, knock off the uh, Dallas Cowboys in a playoff game. And, you know, to me, I don't think there's a whole lot of debate here. It would be for David Tyree if I were to vote. I do think that the the Don Shula moment does hold historical value. And I do think that the Franco Harris immaculate reception is an incredible play, especially since it's this last snap of the game. However, of the four, to me, the Dwight Clark catch is a, is a deep four. I, I think the other three have much more debatable arguments for them than the Dwight Clark catch. Well, the first two you mentioned have to do with the Super Bowl compared to the other two. Mm-hmm. So that right away, to me, carries a little bit more significance. I think the round in which the play or the moment occurred, I should say, is to me something that you need to take into consideration. And I think the Tyree and Shula moments are neck and neck. I will not overlook... The 72 Dolphins pulling off the perfect season in NFL history. I mean, that is a moment. It's not as if something like that comes along very often, okay? So that to me— It almost did in Arizona, and the Giants took care of that, didn't they? And that's why Tyree is up there, because that contributed to spoiling an opportunity for the Patriots to match those 72 Dolphins. So to me, they're neck and neck. If either of those win— I would not be disappointed whatsoever. I think you could easily make a strong case for either one of them, and I probably would because of the significance of a perfect season. I may lean towards the 72 Dolphins. Now, you know what's interesting? NFL Network earlier this past year did their own deal with NFL Films. It was not a fan vote. It was an internal situation, and they picked the top 100 plays in NFL history. Tyree finished second to the Immaculate Reception. Well, because the Immaculate Reception, but here's the thing. The Immaculate Reception, first of all, what I was going to state is a remarkable play. Paul and I were actually watching it again before the show, and every angle, it's amazing how they pulled that off. They still can't figure out scientifically through analysis if, if that ball was legally bounced and caught. Well, off of... Excuse me, off of a Raider or off of a Steeler? They still haven't figured that out. Which is more of a reason why it's an extraordinary (laughs) play. But see, here to me is the big difference, Paul. You said that the Tyree play was second on a list that was the best plays. Plays. Yes. That's the operating phrase. This is best moment. To me, moment and play carry two different meanings and definitions. I can understand that. Would you agree with that? I'd be okay with that. So that's why I can understand the Immaculate Reception from a play standpoint elevating over maybe a play in the Super Bowl. Moment-wise, that's just the aura, the environment surrounding a play, and that's why, to me, I would put the 72 Shula being carried off the field right up there. I think the Franco play also being the last snap of that playoff game. Well, that's another thing. You know, that was a decisive play that decided the final score. As much as I love the David Tyree play, and I would vote it as the number one play, understand this. Plexico Burris had to catch the winning touchdown in the end zone a few snaps after, after that catch course, yeah. for the Giants to change the score. Yeah, a few downs had to occur, by yes. the way. So it was not complete right after that. I mean, Steve Smith had to get a yeah. key well, third that's down why conversion, I said a few too. Plays, yeah, absolutely. So. No, I'm with you. I, I think that's a, a very fair interpretation when you uh, take all of that into consideration. All right, let's head back to the phone lines as we finish up strong on the lines here on Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Julian's in Florida. He joins us here on Giants.com. What's happening, Julian? Hey, Lance Paul. Long, uh, it's been a while, Lance. How are you? I'm doing very well. Hi. How are things with you? 
Uh, Paul, I, I just spoke to you guys about two weeks ago, so okay, <laughs> I, I understand we're about to wrap up, so I'll, I'll make this quick. Um, RIP to uh, Chris Dolman, uh, excellent Hall of Famer. Yeah, um, Paul, you brought up a lot of good points, um, and and just at the same time, uh, Kobe Bryant. I mean, just the work ethic that guy brought to the aspect sure. of any sport is is incredible. So uh, just uh, rest in peace to both them, and condolences to the families. Um, as far as Eli's retirement, I, I do want to kind of applaud Pat Shermer for the way um, Eli's walkout was handled. Um, yes. I think it was a lot of pressure as a, as a head coach to realize that you have a, a quarterback that's heading towards the, you know, the, the closing door of his career and how that was going to be handled. And it could have gone really bad or it could have gone really good. Um, it, I don't think it could have gone any better. So, um, I, I was there for that Miami Dolphins game. I, I love the fact that he called those timeouts, gave it that, that applaud. And um, I think a lot of that has to do with Pat, Pat Sherman. I, and I do, uh, I do uh, applaud him for the way he was handled. And, 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 you know, Eli Manning has created a lot of memories for uh, guys my age. Uh, I'm, I'm 28 years old. So just growing up, uh, you know, high school was those, was those, uh, those Super Bowls. And, you know, I'm, I'm down here in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I got a lot of Jets fans down here. So, and Patriots fans. <laughs> So um, it, it just it was great to see those Super Bowls. And, man, um, if you like to hear this, man, I love you. Thank you for the memories. Um, also, uh, my favorite Eli moment, I, I don't know if you guys wanted to I'm, – I'm, I've been hearing you guys talk about your favorite Eli moments all, all week long. But to me, I don't know why, I feel like my favorite Eli moment, just because he was so easy, man, just, just such a laid-back dude. My favorite Eli moment was uh, that fourth-quarter drive against San Francisco. I think it was 2015 when he threw that touchdown to Larry Donnell. Yeah, um, I remember that game. And the reason why the reason why that that was my favorite is just there's something about when Eli Manning does a fist pump and yells. There's just something that makes <laughs> you want to just run through a wall, man. <laughs> like, I get you. I, that that will always be like my favorite like Eli moment when he was just like yeah. And you, <laughs> when you see Eli pump like that, dude, it, it just pumps me up. And we won that game. It was awesome. It was such a good Eli moment. Um, well, you want to talk and, about him uh, in San Francisco. What about just in 2018, the last-minute drive in San Francisco where Eli authored it and beat the Niners, by the way, during their four-win season before they turned it around and went to this year's Super Bowl. Uh, but it, it was, you know, the fires were burning all over California. The smoke and the haze was all over the place. It smelled awful out is there. That the, is that the game where he ran uh, right behind Shepard and was like, yeah, right after the game? Yeah. And, and well, he threw to Shepard for the go-ahead touchdown. And, yeah, and Shepard went bonkers. And, and I remember, you know, I actually caught up to Eli as he was running off the field. And, and that was his last dramatic game-winning touchdown drive as a giant was that game against the Niners out there at Santa Clara in 2018 and I'll, I'll never forget that one either there were just so many memories well and julian you're referring yeah. to by the way week 5 2015 mm -hmm. niners visited metlife stadium that was the game in which the giants won 30 to 27 in which uh, eli connected with larry Donnell. yep yeah awesome awesome touchdown i mean great catch by larry Donnell. Sure. Yeah. oh absolutely so, just yeah. to let you guys know i'm over here in fort lauderdale i'm going to the real super bowl on friday night it's daniel jones versus sam darnold in the court <laughs> I'm, I'm going man that's I one way enjoy. to spin it all right well have fun julian <laughs> Thank and, you. Uh, Care, good guys. hearing from you got Take it care. appreciate the phone call great job by coach Shermer, though in that miami game to make sure that eli got his just due from the fans and also quite frankly best of luck to coach Shermer and coach shula 
uh, now with the Denver Broncos as offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach. Yeah, the Broncos officially announced the hiring of Mike Shula the other day. Shermer already was finalized as the OC, but they'll be reunited. And, and just a quick side note, I actually, Paul, think it's a great fit for both of them because the way that Denver is structured with Vic Fangio being a defensive guy who hasn't called offensive plays, Shermer's going to be essentially the offensive head coach where mm-hmm. him and Shula are going to continue essentially what they did here with the Giants. Sure. Where Shermer's going to call play, Shula is going to consult with him. And they have a young quarterback. Yeah, and they got a young quarterback, correct, <laughs> they Drew Locke. So that's why it makes so much sense. It's like it mirror images, essentially, of the uh, 2019 season. They just obviously hope for uh, better results on that end. All right, let's head back to the phone lines. Jason is in Connecticut. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Jason? Hey, fellas, what's going on? Hi. You're right, Jason. What's on your mind? Uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks again for taking my call. Sure. Um, I just have three, I, I just have three uh, things I wanted to bring up. I know you guys are wrapping up, so I'll try to make it as quick as possible. Um, first thing I wanted to bring up is the just nostalgia. I know we're talking about Eli. I wanted to go back to one of my favorite games of his, and uh, I don't, I haven't heard anybody mention it, but it was the uh, 2011 game, the Super, the Super Bowl, second Super Bowl run, where we went to Foxborough and he yep. threw the touchdown to Ballard. Mm-hmm. I when mentioned game, that one I yesterday. That's one of my favorite. I think that's one of my favorite Eli games. Absolutely. Uh, to, go, to go up to Foxborough and uh, win, win throwing it to uh, Ballard. I thought that was a great game. Ahead, so I just wanted to bring Yeah, it I mean, there were a lot of great games in that 11 season, but that's one of them. Yeah. Stuck it to yeah. Brady again that time on his home turf, though. <laughs> right, nice. right. Exactly. Um, and then the last two points, uh, they're going to tie in the free agency and uh, the draft. I know we're not nowhere near the draft yet, so it's hard to speculate, but... I think outside of Chase Young, who I'm, I doubt was going to drop to four, but you never know what will happen. Um, I think it will be a great time. Um, I know people like to get on Gettleman, who I actually think is a really good GM. And I, like, I know people like to get on him and, and uh, crucify him, but I think this would be a great time to trade down this year. Um, outside of Chase Young, I don't really necessarily see – a bona fide gold jacket like uh, Gettleman likes to bring up. Um, I think we have a chance to drop. Um, I think we should take the opportunity, depending on the package, of course. I don't think we should take anything, but depending mm-hmm. on the package, um, I think we should drop down. Um, I don't know what you guys think. What If we were to trade down, how far would you guys drop? I don't think anything past 8 or 10, um, but what would you guys uh, think would deem necessary? I mean, you know, deem acceptable to drop down to. All right, well, we'll answer that uh, off the air for you, uh, Jason. I do appreciate the phone call. Thanks so much for the question and weighing in. Uh, You and I talked about this over the last few days, especially with maybe it appearing the Chargers now could be looking for a quarterback. That's just pure speculation, nothing definitive there, and they're right behind the Giants. This all goes back to the board, Paul, and I know I'm going to sound like a broken record and the price, but whenever I hear a fan call up and say, "I in my mind, I don't think – if Chase Young is not there, there's nobody that is a must-have at four. But we don't know what the Giants' board looks like. And they may have somebody that is a must-have, that is very high in their regard. So my philosophy is if you get to four and you have a guy that you absolutely want, you take him and you don't ask any questions. If you've got a few guys that you're torn between and you could say, you know what, I could live with this guy, I could live with that guy, that's when I think it makes sense to say if we move down could we still be within striking distance of some of these players? And then you have to determine how far that is. I think with any move, what you get in return is a big factor. But yeah, if you're at four, 
I don't think you really want to go that far down. I mean, I think you still want to stay within the top 10 to walk away with a good playmaker. It seems to me, based on the positions and the uh, need for quarterbacks by the teams right behind the Giants, I suspect you probably would get the best price if you stayed within the top seven. Because I think teams five, six, and seven, as you look at the draft order, yeah. you could make an argument that those teams may want to overpay to get to four to draft a, let's say, a Herbert or a Tua if they're still on the board. I don't know how much you will get teams beyond the seventh spot to overpay. And to me, that's a big part of trading down. And I'm going to make this very clear. I have no objection to the Giants trading down a few spots. I do think there are those who think that Simmons would be worth the value at four, and Okuda might be worth the value at four. I don't know that there are any other defensive players on the board that would give you fourth pick value. That, But that's just hearsay right now. I haven't yeah. done my draft study either, and obviously we'll never know what the Giants think upstairs. But I don't get the impression from the draft stuff that we've heard floating about to this point that there'd be any other guys other than Young, Simmons, and Okuda that you would consider on the defensive side at number four. Let's head back to the phone lines. Len is in Maryland. He's here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Len? Hey, guys. Uh, on, a, on a trade down, Paul, I think what we have to hope for is that two his medicals come out the way we want them. To come that would out, help. So that there's some competition between Herbert and, and Tua. And I agree with you. I, I, I frankly would like five and six to really be get a little desperate. And I, I wouldn't tra- I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't trade below six. That's that's just my viewpoint on, on on things. But I think we can walk away with a haul if one of those two teams, um, you know, even at five, trying to protect the guy they want, um, and even it's a flip between four and five, uh, just to save us from trading with six. Um, I, I think we're in a real good position there, <laughs> and we'll see how that plays out. Len, hey, to, kudos, to, to educate kudos, everybody kudos else, to educate yeah, everybody sorry, else ahead, for what ahead, you're Paul. talking about, Miami is five, the Chargers are six, Carolina right. is seven, yeah. and there is a yeah. presumption, at least, that all three of those teams may be looking for a quarterback. Just to make that clear. Yeah, uh, the the only the only reason why I didn't go to seven, Paul. You, you know, you go to seven, and maybe, um, you know, at four they pick Herbert, and that's really who five and six wanted. Mm-hmm. And and you begin to see some of these other players go, even if it's one. Possible. Yeah. And by the time you get to seven, you're, you, have, you don't get the guy who you've really earmarked. One of the things I like <laughs> about, the top, about the top six, Paul, I mean, we can begin to think player, a name. Rather than uh, you know somebody we really want, right? Rather than saying, well, whoever the best player available is at that point. There's always know, we'll risk when you move down, Len. Even if it's only two spots, unless you're going one spot down because you have a pretty darn good idea of who that team wants to get. Uh, yes. Once you start going two spots down or more, there's going to be risk. And the bottom yes. line is, if you get overwhelmed with such yeah. a price you may be willing to take a little bit more of a risk because they could yeah. pull you over. Yeah, good point, good point. And, uh, you know, on that risk, uh, risk standpoint, I'm going to use a, perhaps an overused word, but, you know, when you get to the draft, it's such a crap crapshoot. Uh, every pick is a reach. 
Of now, course, c- yeah. certainly pick 200 it might be more of a reach than pick number one. Sure, but, sure. Uh, well, because there's no crystal ball. Some yeah. degree of risk to it. Hey, uh, kudos to Shermer on that Miami game. But let's not forget, if I remember this correctly, and I hope I did, um, Miami called a timeout and allowed us to do that, allowed us to get Eli off the field to um, you know a maximum roar from the crowd. Uh, do, you, do you remember it that way, Paul? And I wonder if there was some sort of signal across the field, because there was no reason for Miami to call a timeout at that point. Len, I was on the sideline, and the emotions were running high. And to be totally frank with you, I don't remember who called the timeout or if there yep. was any communication okay. from the two teams. I okay. can only tell okay. you that at that moment, the place was rocking. And on the sideline, yeah. there was yeah, such sure a chill was. Was and right such there. a. It was rocking. Uh, there was such a an abundance of goosebumps at that moment. Yeah, it was very surreal. Absolutely, it really was. Yeah, yeah absolutely. One one other quick point. Um, you, you know, Lance on the um, uh, you know tying Eli's game record wins to a to a pitcher. I totally agree with you. We shouldn't do that. But let's remember, and I think Paul, you looked this up one time uh, uh, earlier in the year. Um, I think there's only 12 quarterbacks in NFL history who've won 117 games. Um, only 12 in a 100-year history of the NFL who've won 117 games. And I, I know that detractors will say, well, that's because he played 16 years. But then you start getting into what do you, you, you know, you're going to hold durability against the guy? I mean, come on. You know, how ridiculous is that? But mm-hmm. 117 wins is a heck of a lot of wins for a quarterback. And um, well, Len, in so this I case, see that as a positive. I don't, I don't see the one seventeen, one seventeen. No, I'm with you. Meaning, and and meaning by the anything, way, especially since Jurgensen and um, Jurgensen and Namath are, are, are right. below five hundred, and they're in the hall. Well, let me let me just say this, Len. The longevity argument. The reason that that one actually backfires on the critics is because the longevity slash durability of Eli is a positive. Of that's a plus. That's a, not a negative. That's a plus for him. Well, especially I mean, the injury rate in the NFL yeah. and at that yeah. position too. That's Think why about how many how many yeah. quarterbacks get hit with concussions and are told by the league they can't play. Yeah. Eli never even suffered one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. You know, it's it's almost like it's almost like holding. Um, Kobe scoring. Rest in peace, Kobe, and and the sure. other folks who passed in that in that mm-hmm. terrible accident. But, uh, you know, it's almost like saying, well, Kobe scored 33. The only reason Kobe scored 33,000-plus points in his career is, is because he played 20 years. I mean, come on. I mean, well, no, but, uh, but just, I think, I think Len, but Len, in basketball, you could make the argument of efficiency. So, for example, if somebody scores 20,000 points in 100 games and another guy it takes 150, there, to me, yeah. is a noticeable difference in that. And that's worthy of bringing up. Yeah. So, so efficiency yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, in getting to those that's, that's, that's markers. That's a very good point. But I, I think, I mean, like we always say, and it's an old cliche, durability, you know, it's, it's the best ability. And uh, we should well, especially that in football. anybody, yeah. yes. anybody in any situation. No hey, doubt thanks, about it. Thanks, Len. Thanks, Len. appreciate the phone call. Right. In any sport, you hold up. That does count for something. You don't make the team in the tub, as they always say. All right, that is going to wrap things up for us here on the latest edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Appreciate everybody for tuning in. Thanks so much for the phone calls. He is Paul Dettino. I'm Lance Meadow. A reminder, Big Blue Kickoff Live brought to you by Coors Light, mountain cold refreshment made to chill. And as always, stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest. Have a good one.